Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for your mercies and how they're new uh, each day and your faithfulness to see us here um, another Sunday. And would you be with us as we look at, uh, again, uh, your doctrine of grace and your gift of grace to us and what that means for us today. And would you, um, again, continue to prepare us for worship uh, this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so uh, you've got two, two different handouts as you've come in the room. This is the outline, as, as it says, for part two of Solo Grothia. And then there's this effectual calling. It's two pages. This is uh, Darwin's uh, handout that I thought might be helpful uh, for, for some of us, if you all want further reading on, uh, if you remember just some review from last week. We talked about the doctrines of grace and how the church has come back and forth on salvation. And, um, and so, you know, over the years, um, we, have, we have coined certain phrases. And, and for the Reformed people, for, for Calvinists, there's this phrase called tulip uh, that wasn't the, invented by Calvin, but it's sort of a summary of his points. And we talked about what those five points meant, and those five points are, t- are, are essentially uh, a response to the Arminian uh, uh, beliefs from Jacob's, Jacob Arminian, Arminius and, um, and, and the doctrines of uh, semi-Pelagianism and those kinds of things. Um, and last week we had a really good question about limited atonement, or not limited atonement, but uh, irresistible grace. And what this handout is about is what most people refer to, would rather call it, it just it messes up the acronym TULIP, which is effectual calling. And um, so, uh, if, you, if you're interested in reading more about that, here it is. I'm happy to answer or field questions from last week at this point, too. If you all took the Sproul article home and read it, or the other article on the um, different acronyms of Reformed Faith, any of that, um, it's all up for grabs. I want to play Stump the Chump here for a couple of minutes. What, anything anything y'all are thinking? This is the fun part of Sunday School. We can't, get, can't do this in worship. You just have to listen to me. Okay. Um, as always, you can always raise your hand at any point, or email me, or but uh, any comments. Sometimes that's easier to get people talking. Just you know, maybe not a question, but comments or anything you're learning at this point that you'd like to share with the rest of us. Okay. Nothing. All right. Well, let's keep going. Uh, let me review here again. Uh, remember last week I put this sort of sort of this wheel up here, that as we talk about these five solas, um, again, we're not trying to rank any of them. I don't know that that's the point, but they are interconnected, and they all kind of are moving to support the fifth one that we're going to talk about, which is the glory of God. And that is, in many ways, the litmus test of the doctrines of Scripture, and as we interact with them, is who is this ultimately bringing glory to? Is it, is it bringing glory to me, or is it bringing glory to God Himself? And this was what was in the what was in the reformers' minds as they were um, putting their lives on the line um, during this period of time. So, uh, part two: What does grace really do for us? As always, I like to provide some resources. A lot of these, most of these, uh, some, well, all of these actually, we'll we'll be hearing from at some point. Um, today, but I like to use things that we have out on the book table. So, like, if y'all have ever, ever got your hands on these little publications, they are fantastic. 
Um, obviously, they're, they're just about one thing. This one here is about grace. You can get them on various topics, but just something like this. You don't have to get this 300-page you know, leather-bound volume to learn about the doctrine of grace. I mean, that helps, I guess. But this is very, very good. So if you're interested in something concise, we'll hear from this. Uh, Ferguson came out with his By Grace Alone, and this is just um, Sinclair Ferguson. It's fantastic. And then uh, I think one of the most helpful books on grace for me as uh, um, a young pastor in seminary, uh, was it's by Brian Chapel, his book called Holiness by Grace. And what this really gets at, gets at is, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the what's the word? Um, a lot of the pushback on the reform, those, those against the reform thought of Scripture is that, well, you say all these things about salvation, you say all these things about the grace of God, um, but, you know, it, in its practice, it just, y'all don't do anything. You know, in its practice, you just become licentious. In its practice, you don't move towards holiness. And Chapel's whole point, which is really the Reformer's whole point, is no, it's actually the opposite. Grace is the only thing that we'll see this morning that moves you, has the power to move you in the direction of holiness. Um, your ability or thought to either earn your salvation or to um, you know, keep pleasing the Lord with your gifts or your works will not make you holy. In fact, it'll actually do the opposite. And we'll see that this morning. So his book, Holiness by Grace, the point is that grace is the only thing that can actually fuel and empower us to move away from sin and therefore to move us towards holiness. So I'd recommend that book to you as well. Okay? All right, so going back to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to stay there sort of as our anchor text for this. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Ephesians chapter 2. Did everybody that wants one get a handout? I'll bring one. And then there's the effectual two pages. Um, hey, Ben, grab Ben. There's two pages. Grab. Oh. Yeah. So as we looked at, the summary of this is in the first three verses... Paul talks about the, the state of man as being dead in his sin. Verse 4 begins with, but God. This is all about him, what he's doing, and begins to talk about this gift of faith that, that we have by grace alone. As we look at verses um, 6 to 7, again, this is answering the, I'm answering the question this morning, what does grace really do for us? We're going to see that it does several things. Uh, but first, we can, we're going to see that, that grace is set out first and foremost to, to magnify God himself. So when we look at verses 6 and 7, he says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what we begin to see here is that God's purpose, essentially, and this is, uh, I'll pull from uh, Sean, Sean Lucas here, God's purpose to be fa- is to be famous for His abundant, immeasurable, surpassing grace and to be hallowed and vindicated before the nations and the spiritual forces that oppose Him. Is one way that He says this. So, in other words, uh, the doctrine of grace, one of the things it does and one of, the, one of its purposes is to actually magnify God Himself. And the idea that Scripture presents is that the reason why grace is both um, so scandalous in one hand... Um, and, and, and lovely in another, 
is that there's nothing that magnifies God's true character more than when you see grace displayed throughout the Scripture. Uh, and, and by that, God giving to people what they don't deserve, His love and affection. God giving to people who have been alien, alienated to, uh, from Him, who have been enemies of Him, giving, giving them mercy and showing them the love and kindness um, that they don't deserve. Um, uh, one of the ways we talk about this is um, with, with, our, uh, with Westminster, the uh, catechism, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Uh, when we say phrases like, we're here to glorify God, what does that more than anything is His grace. Uh, in the Old Testament, we had this refrain, and I'll use Ezekiel to, um, to, to, to summarize it, that you'll hear this a lot, that they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, and you're all probably familiar with that if you've been um, in and around the Scriptures. And they shall know that I am the Lord. Well, why is God saying that? He's saying that because He wants them to know how great He is. Now, that sounds sort of egotistical, doesn't it? Um, and, and a lot of people accuse God of being a megalomaniac or you know, all these types of things. Um, but we'll get into how that really is not true. But they shall know that I am the Lord. This is God's uh, design for... Um, for him, through, by grace, so that they will know how great he really is. Um, along with along with that, God desires for his character to be magnified. We notice there, as we read there, that uh, Ephesians talks about the kindness of God while we were dead in our transgressions. And uh, Lucas says, God runs towards us, not away from us. It's a huge distinction um, here and why grace is so important. God runs towards us, not away from us. He comes near, near to us in Jesus, and He saves us. And so when we begin to talk about grace in those terms, how God runs towards us, not away from us, and we begin to wrestle with this idea of, well, is God just sort of egotistical and just wants to make His name great? How does, how does the doctrine of grace diffuse that? So when, I, when you hear God runs towards you, not away from you, that He wants to draw near to you in Jesus, the cost to Himself, how does that begin to magnify, God, to magnify God's character for you? How does it begin to impact your worship of Him? Yeah, well, okay, so you're, we're, we're always learning who God is. And God is saying that, he, grace is telling you that what he's deciding to do is not run away from you. He's trying to run at you. He's trying to draw near to you. How does that impact your worship? How does that, how does that define your, the, your, his character for you? Go ahead. It, it gives me awe. Okay, good. He knows me the best. Right. And he still runs towards me. Right. All is a huge, huge thing. And I think it's probably the, the, one of the more, more central ingredients to worship. My, kind of a, a, a thing that resonates with me is that if I really understand God rightly, I'm afraid of Him. Yes. It's, it's hard for me to grasp that God loves me, He cares for me, He accepts me. And, and so to hear these things, to see Scripture, you know, more clearly is is to actually free free me up so that I can worship. So I'm not just like hovering 
cowering, terrified um, of him, but I'm actually really apprehending, wow, this this God who's, who's so other is also the God who comes near. Mm-hmm. He's the God who's he's not ashamed to be next to me. And if everybody knew me, they would be ashamed to be next to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's interesting. That's why in verse 7 we read that that there's a desire that, uh, that, that says that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. That God cares about telling you or showing you um, that he's kind. All right? We're going to see uh, this, after, we'll see this morning that um, he's also gentle. Um, and what does that mean? Right? Um, uh, the idea of gentleness is at least at least as we, we read about it in, in Hebrews five, but throughout scripture, is that there's this understanding, it's kinda of, kinda of goes along with meekness, that there's this understanding that I know who I am and I know my sin and I know what it you know who I truly am and I know what I truly deserve, but I don't get it. God gives me something else. And that in turn changes me and causes me to be gentle towards other people. Um, well, we found out last week that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us. In other words, he's without sin, but at the same time, he knows what you have been through and what you go through and your temptations and your struggles. And he's not ashamed of that. And he doesn't run away from that. He runs towards you. Um, that's gentleness, right? Were you going to ask a question? Yeah, I just think a comparison that may be helpful for our humanity is Sure. Yeah. Our sin, even the most polished and beautiful of us, yeah. is worse than that. Yeah. And God comes near. And the, honestly speaking, you know, it, it's it's not even a wood for me. It's I I I am repulsed. You know, I am, um, you know, I intentionally navigate my work, navigate life to avoid people I don't want to be around. I try not to, but I do, right? I mean, if we all sat here and sort of dissecting our days and our lives, you know, who we're around, who we're not around, who we choose to befriend, who we don't befriend, you know, it gets a little gray. Am I doing this because this is just, I'm just open and friendly to everybody? Or am I, am I, am I discriminating here because I want to be, you know, with these people or with that person or I don't want to spend time with these people? Like, it, it, it is there. It is there. And, and, and yes, to use a, a, an illustration as drastic as a leper gets at the point, but it's so much more subtle than that, too, which points to the, the messiness of our hearts. So I appreciate that, John. Um, good. Let me move on here. This is, this is all under the heading of how grace is... One of the things it does is it magnifies God himself. Grace is also there to magnify Jesus too. So this is, we're getting into some Trinitarian thought here. And we see this in verses 4 to 6. And we've already sort of read through this. But let me, let me read for you what, what Lucas says here in, in his What is Grace booklet. He says, He, Paul, in verses 4 to 6, actually makes up three words. Um, this is the only place they show up in the Greek New Testament. And these single words... Uh, and the original language actually takes several words to translate into English. And if you look there in verses 4 to 6, you'll see these phrases. The first one is, made us alive together with him. This is a made-up word that Paul is, is making, uh, making up to, to, 
to communicate this. Raised us up with him is another one. And seated us with him is another one. Why does Paul do this? Uh, why does Paul do this um, as he points out the riches of God's grace through and with the mediator Jesus? The blessings of God's grace come through our union with Christ as God sees us with him, united to him. We are made alive, raised, and seated with him. Um, I must have missed a question mark there. Sorry. The point is, um, the greatest blessing that we receive in our union with Christ, God's grace, is not justification. It's not our holiness. It's not uh, even our, 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 you know, it's not any of those things. It's that we actually receive Jesus himself. Right, so that we actually are with Him, that we are united with Him, and this is all because of grace. And so Paul is showing us here that part of this, this grace here is to magnify the Son as well. Okay, these are huge topics. We're not we're not at all beginning to like get into the depths of them as much as just scratch the surface with them. So um, I recognize that as we talk about this stuff, there's a lot here. Um, but I want us to give sort of an overview here of some of the benefits, um, uh, which, which leads to the third one that I want us to look at is how grace magnifies God's benefits to us. And this gets to verses 8 and 9, how this, is, uh, this um, talks about the gift that we have here. So um, God doesn't just make us alive again and then send us on our merry way. He makes us, what, heirs to his kingdom. Right? And this is the whole, um, we'll call this the great exchange. It's, it's, a lot of people will look at Christianity and say, okay, here's what grace is. Grace is God forgives me of my sins, but it's my turn now to do the rest. Um, this is very much part of uh, Catholic justification. So there's, 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 the, there's the baptism and there's forgiveness of your original sins, but now it's up to you um, to, look, to, to do the rest. Um, and part of that doing the rest is as you go live a good life and present yourself before the Lord, when there's times when you don't, you've got to come to confession. You've got to work that out. Um, but it's up to you. Um, but, but grace in, in Scripture is never just the forgiveness of your sins. It's also and this. It's the imputing of righteousness is one of the things we call it. But it, it's, it's the benefits of Jesus that we get as well. So, and this is, this is the most... This is the, you know, the most glorious thing of all is that we aren't just sort of made right. We're made better than right. We're given the status of Jesus in one sense. We are, become, we are made sons and daughters of the king. We're, we're heirs to this kingdom. We're, we're given all these things. Um, and, and part of this, as far as grace is concerned, is that the, why, why God does this is, is the gift, right? The gift of these things, God's benefits, is there to what? Magnify the gift giver. Okay, so think about your birthday, think about Christmas, think about whenever it is you receive presents. All right, there probably comes a time in your life where you begin to realize, okay, yeah, I want toys as a kid, or I just want to open something new and all that. But as we kind of mature a little bit, um, when we're given a really nice gift from somebody, um, what does that do in terms of what does it say to us about the person who actually gave it? I mean, that's what, that's what really the gift becomes is... Yeah, I've got this tangible thing, but man, it really says more about the giver. And there's that relationship, that connection there that's made because of this gift and what it says about that giver in the first place. This is exactly God's intentions of his grace for you, is that as the giver of this gift, the point is for you to receive it, to take it, 
And it's to tell you even more about who the giver is himself. Okay, now does that sound selfish? Does that sound conceited? It doesn't depend on the giver. It does. It does. Um, I'm not prepared to unpack that with my wife in the room, but... <laughs> I've always heard it explained that for, for any other being in existence, it would be arrogant and conceited. But if God's best thing that He would give us is Himself, it would be unright for Him to do anything but present Himself as the most glorious thing. So for Him, it's the loving thing to do. To show him, to show the truth to us. That, that there's nothing else that will satisfy us. Anything else is him, is him doing bad towards us. So for him, it's not very good. That's a great way to put it. And I think that for, for me, what, what, where I go to um, when I think about that or hear that is it, it's just another indication. Of, 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 of the separation that our sin has caused. We don't get holiness. We just don't get what it means to be somebody who really does deserve all of this. And just as you said, by all of this I mean glory and everything, but just as you said, it would be actually against God's character to not give us Himself, which is the best thing for us. Is somebody else going to say something? But you're right, it depends on the giver. And, um, and this, this illustration might be lost on some of y'all, but uh, there was a TV show called The Office many years back, and there was a Christmas episode. And you, if you know anything about The Office, it's, it's centered around uh, Michael Scott, who is the antithesis of God, although he thinks he is. He's so self-absorbed and self-centered. And at this Christmas party, they were supposed to do a $5 white elephant gift, which, you know, you go somewhere and you get, like, you know, an oven mitt or just, it's you know, $5. Well, he... This is right when the iPod came out. He goes and he spends $400 on an iPod and wraps it up. And, and people start you know, doing the white elephant thing. And, and people are opening all this junk. And all of a sudden, somebody gets this iPod. And it just sort of totally disrupts everything. And, in, and as they're trying to figure out, like how, or trying to explain how inappropriate this was, because we were told only to spend $5. And there's one point in an episode where the iPod gets exchanged and Michael gets... I think he actually does get of mitts, and, and he just he says what he's thinking. He's like, "You're telling me that you love me, you know, an oven mitt's worth." And and what does my iPod tell you? It tells you that I love you four hundred dollars worth. <laughs> he's just weighing his gift. I'm might be butchering that a little bit, but yeah. True. <laughs> or to stay. <laughs> so we know that we live by works in 
It is. That's good. So what happens here um, with these benefits that we're mentioning in this last point is this idea of this great exchange. I don't know if it's on your sheet, but it's 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's the idea of reconciliation. It's the idea of uh, atonement. And true atonement happens because God is treated as though he is responsible for our sins. He wears them on his shoulders. And we are then treated as though we are righteous. Right? It's this exchange here. Right? And so um, those, this is how the Bible talks about these benefits given to us. But all of this is a function of grace. Okay? So uh, moving on to the security of our salvation. And this gets to what Ben brought up last week. The idea here is if God starts it, He will finish it. And I want to look at Romans 8, 31, 35 here. We'll go verse by verse. But um, this is really one of, um, I mean, there's one of many, but one of the things that grace gives us is the security of our own salvation. Um, And so if we, yeah, I will just go through this. Look at verse uh, 31 there, which, which says, uh, basically, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the question there is, how, how, how do you know if God is for you? And, um, and there's two responses for this. There's a works-based response and there's a grace-based response. And what works says is, well, how do I know if God is for me? Well, I look at what I've done. Okay, And what we're going to see is that this sounds good. On some days, but it sounds really bad on other days. And, uh, and then it sounds bad over the course of a lifetime because it becomes the yoke that you're now uh, secured to or fastened to. And this burden is um, so heavy and so cumbersome and so dest- destroying. So, but that's the work-based response to this. How do I know if God is for me? I look at what I've done. What grace says is I look at what Jesus has done. Okay. And so immediately what grace is doing, and this is probably one of its intentions, is it's removing the eyes of ourselves, which are bent inwards. That's what sin has done, and it's cast them outward. All right, stop navel-gazing. Stop looking at yourself and what you have done and start looking at what Jesus has done for you. This is the intention of grace. And this, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? All right, if God has done these wonderful things for you, who in the world could ever bring a charge against you? Works-based response, grace-based response. Verse 32, he who did not spare, right? Our confidence comes in knowing that this God did not spare his own son, but gave him up. So this looks at the, looks at the gift. It looks at the cost to the gift giver himself. Um, works uh, makes this gift about our, ourselves, um, where grace keeps it about Jesus. And what I mean by that is that if the Bible is trying to do this show here, that is highlighting what God has done for us in Jesus, that he didn't spare his only son. What works is trying to do, right as the curtain is being drawn, is jump out there and say, hey, I was a part of this too. You know, It's wanting to be a part of the show. It's wanting to be uh, you know, somehow steal a little bit of that glory away from the main act. Okay? Um, so the Bible goes to great lengths to talk about what God gave, what, God, what it cost God to atone for sin, and, and, and he was willing to, uh, to not spare anything. And we know that because he gave his son. Grace keeps this about that work itself, okay? 
verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Work says, my efforts will bring a charge against me. And this is where this gets more, um, uh, more personal, more internal. Um, that when we decide to remove grace from the equation and we decide to live based on our own merit, it, you're constantly, you are constantly dealing with whether I've done enough to merit God's favor. But what you're really battling is the works that your the charges that your own works bring against you. Um, it's the head game, if you will. So when you lay your head on your pillow at night and you've got to ask yourself, did I do enough? Right? How do I fix what, what did happen? Or I think it's the worst. It's when you do lay your head on your pillow and you think, I did do enough. But then you think, I've got to get up tomorrow and I've got to do it all over again. This is the charge. Grace says, Jesus' efforts put an end to any charge against me. Okay? Put, a char- it put, a, put an end to any charge against me from God himself because God uh, sees me as clothed in the righteousness of his son. But it also puts an end uh, to the accusations that we bring, a, a part, bring to ourselves. This doesn't mean those accusations don't come. Uh, if you're somebody who doesn't accuse themselves, you're probably in the minority. Um, I accuse myself all the time. But what Romans 8.33 is reminding me is nobody can bring a charge against you, not even yourself. And we have to continue to come back to this living water, if you will, come back to this truth and remind ourselves um, of this truth and, and, more importantly, how this grace changes us and, and, and impacts us. So, yeah. You probably are. Yes. <laughs> because I am so unique. Yes, I'm an identical twin, but yes. Okay. Uh, now where am I going? Uh, the grace comes through, uh, by grace you've been saved through faith. Mm-hmm. I did grow up in an Armenian background, but that but through faith, uh, not an understanding of faith, it's really easy to, to read that and was in my you, and up till I was 50, that that was, was my faith good enough? It right. It was my act of faith. Mm-hmm. And it was like when I read the scripture, it said that faith comes from hearing, and hearing is from the word of God, that it turned to me that God is who is calling me into that faith. But I think it's really, really easy for someone to read faith and think that if I just believe enough, but thankfully I could notice that God had always been calling me to it. Yeah, no, I, and that was what made the difference when that was pointed out to me. Has He been calling you? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I share the exact same experience. I don't know if some of you all do. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a false understanding of what faith is. And it's, we either approach faith as quality or quantity. All right, so, so quantity would be, I need more faith. You ever said that to yourself or heard people say, you just got to have more faith. You got to believe. And faith is never presented to us in quantity as if somehow people are given you know, certain doses of it while others are giving more. It's, it's, it's one thing. It's, it's one gift, according to Ephesians 2. The other is quality, that somehow um, you know, we just got to believe the right things in the right way and practice the right things in the right way. And that is what faith, uh, that quality of faith will, um, will, will allow you to believe better or be, be, be more saved. And, and the, the reality is what faith, faith is neither quality or quantity. Faith is, is, is if, you know, to use the illustration of 
the windshield in a car. It's, it's not what we look at. It's what we look through to see uh, who we are, where we're going. So, does that make sense? Yes, that was just a hard way to spend a lot of my life. Or if I'd been faithful enough when I was a child. Yeah. In that one moment that needed to be a physical one moment of coming to God as I understood it. Yeah. I didn't know if my child's heart was quality All right, um, 34 and 35, we won't spend much time on, but you can kind of see where this is going. Um, where, where grace leads us then is, is, is further on down the road to say, who can condemn you and no one, and who shall separate you from the love of God? Nothing. So this, this, this whole chain here talks about the security of our salvation, what grace has done for us, that you can, because of God's grace, you can rest assured that your salvation is secure, that, that even in the brokenness of your sinner's prayer, who... We, I said it for four years straight to make sure that I was saved. Like I can begin to rest from that, knowing that it doesn't. It's not, it's not the quality of that prayer. <laughs> you know, it's. I already know it's. It's not good enough. What makes me good is Jesus. Nothing separates me from that love. And I think one of the best ways that it was put to me, um, I think when I was in high school, it just stuck with me to kind of rid me of. Uh, the works game is, you know, at the end of the day, when we say that Jesus is it, when we say that Jesus is what this is all about, um, when I get to heaven, whatever that looks like, and, and I find out that Jesus isn't enough, I'm actually okay to go to hell, okay? In other words, I have nothing else to rest, on, rest upon. And if he isn't enough, then I'm fine with that. It's kind of thinking about it from the other side. Because that is all that I have. And there is nothing else that I can do um, that's going to secure this for me that Jesus hasn't already done for me. So he's it. Um, We'll probably talk more about that when we get to Christ alone. Okay, any questions so far on the security of our salvation and what it brings us? And this is huge. It's just... It's, it's so wonderful. Um, next is the power to do good works. I talked briefly about this with uh, Chapel's book, um, Holiness by Grace. But uh, it, it is grace that, that allows the engine of the Christian life, which is repentance and faith, uh, to happen. And, and I think we can kind of walk, walk through this. Works makes repentance shameful. Okay, so if I, uh, if I messed up again, uh, then for me to have to go repent of that, is, is, is God just asking me to air my laundry in front of me again, right? And God becomes that accuser, and it's shameful. It's shameful. And so, therefore, I don't do the one thing that, that is going to actually propel me to do good works. It's actually going to make me holy, which is repent. Um, this doesn't mean that repentance is easy. It's just saying, because I mean, I hate repentance still, and I love grace. It's just that's still being worked out in me. Um, but if, if, if works is the way that I'm obtaining my salvation, repentance is shameful. Grace makes repentance joyful. And it takes a while to get to this. Um, but when I do repent, what grace does is it says, so this is how much the Father loves me. And that's just a subtle shift, right? We've gone from I've messed up again to this is how much the Father loves me. There's nothing natural in you that leads you to say that. <coughs> 
There's nothing a part of you that's ever going to lead you to say, as you deal with your shame and your guilt of confessing your sin, it's going to lead you to say, so this is how much the Father loves me, that He's willing to forgive me again. Nothing apart from yourself is going to lead you to that. Your glimpse of the Father's love for you in the midst of your repentance is probably the best evidence you have right now of His affection upon you, of His calling upon you, of His interaction in your life, of His... Of his being real, that you would actually begin to see repentance as how much the Father loves you. That joy begins to spring of that cannot come from who we are apart from, the God, apart from God's intervention in our lives. Um, <clears throat> so, and, and so again, we miss all this when grace is not at the foundation of who God is and what He's doing for us. Um, I would also say that, that grace, um, as far as good works is concerned, it, it gives us a right motivation for good works. And this is number six. I'm sure there's more, but this is, I thought this would be enough for today, and it looks like it is. Uh, when I talk about right motivation, we say this a lot. We're no longer working for the Father's affection. We have it. So grace puts us in this place where... Beforehand, I was doing a lot of things to earn God's favor and affection, but grace says, I have it already. I have it in Jesus. He went and he died for me before I even knew who he was, before I knew the depths of my own sin. So I have his affection. I have his love. Therefore, I'm going to go do great things for him. That is the, that is the only motivation that is acceptable to him. Every other motivation in our lives is, well, if I go do this, uh, well, how will this make me look? Right? If I go do this... Will somebody think better of me? Um, you know, we, we have these internal motivations that are there to, um, that, 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 that are hiding, so to speak, and being clothed in, in good works that are really there to glorify ourselves and they are to glorify God Himself. Um, I would say also um, motivation for, um, the right motivation changes how we treat others. So, I don't know if you have this on your sheet. How I've been treated will be the measure in which I treat others. This is another huge difference between grace and works. And so if you're somebody who's dealing with a works-based mentality, um, which means you feel like you've, you, you've achieved something, you've done something, you've treated people rightly, um, then that's the measure you put on other people. And that's a measure that will break people because you're asking them to do something, one that you think you're doing, but you're not doing really. But you're asking them to do something that they can't do. Um, you're, you're calling them to a place uh, that, one, Jesus isn't calling them to. And that is to fix themselves, essentially, apart from the love and the grace of Jesus. And so this impacts the way we treat others tremendously. It impacts the way that we um, think about treating others. It doesn't mean we don't call people to holiness. We don't call them out of sin. We don't call them into light. This means that we extend that arm of grace because it's been extended to us as well. So... Um, grace to others looks like gentleness, not condemnation. Grace to myself, um, grace to you looks like I have freedom to fail. And if there's something in our culture, something in our DNA right now that is so foreign to that statement, it's I don't have the freedom to fail. I don't have the freedom to admit that I've messed up, to admit that I'm wrong, to, to, to show my family that I've made a mistake, um, to show my boss that I, I can't cut it here. Like there is no room for making mistakes. And so you run and you run and you run and you run and you run. Uh, but the freeing work of the gospel is that you're actually free to fail because there's grace for that. It doesn't leave you there. 
but you're actually free to fail, and you can rest because of that. You can actually rest um, in, in a way that nobody else in this world can rest. This is why one of the greatest things that Christians have bringing to the marketplace is this crazy idea of, hey, I'm okay with what's going on. I'm, I'm not stirred up or caught up in all of the, the rat race slash uh, stress of life because I have the eternal rest of Jesus. Now, that, you know, that, that's a real thing that you bring into this place. Um, because I know that my failures, for example, do not indicate or are not an indication of who I am anymore, which is really what is motivating people to run this rat race, to be defined by their works. Um, when you know that you can rest, when you know that you have freedom to fail, you actually have freedom to be great because you can try things that other people are too afraid to try. You can, you can go love, which is more what the Bible is pushing us to go do, go love sacrificially and, and graciously um, because what, 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 what do you got to lose? What's the cost? Would the parable of the talents speak to that? It would, absolutely would. Yeah, I mean, it's all over. It's all over Scripture. It's beautiful. And, um, and the church has been given it. And you have this wonderful job of taking it to the world and showing people in the way that you act and live and treat others wh- who this God is, right? Here we go again, got back to the be- beginning. We're, we're going to magnify God himself by reflecting his own grace towards others. So. Yeah, and, and equally for the people that have to live with such self-righteous people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know, I, I, tongue-in-cheek, I think that's a wonderful shift, observation. The shift of just, you know, Christianity is repentance and faith. Christianity is just depending on Christ. And there are beautiful things that flow out of that, but until glory, it's just going to be a mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the overused word of tension, right? Because grace and faith and repentance is a work, right? Uh, at the same time, it should like like what you're what you're talking about is that that grace and repentance should lead to something different and something new. Chose to do it through us, 
But when he's doing it through us, it's him doing it. Right. It's not us. I mean, he blesses us with beautiful weather and, and clean water and all those things. But also, he does show himself when we let get out of the way and let him love others through us. Right. But you were, you're saying... Okay. And it's up to the church, instead of um, showing the world good works, like, I'm not, I'm not saying don't do good works. I think good works will flow out of faith and repentance. I'm not worried about the church doing good works. I think the good works of the church are under-reported. However, um... You're saying maybe we're heavy-footed on the works and not as heavy-footed on the faith and repentance. I think in the culture around us almost demands good works from the church and Christians. Oh, right. Do out of that. Out of that is his own, um, is his own pleasure and for his own glory. You know, I think about the the good intentions of many Christians and how that's, um, you know, it's like this. Like mm-hmm. I don't know, good intentions all day. It still doesn't stop me from. Yeah, I think some of the things that Aid and I have said over our seven years at Alabama is uh, when you when you feel like you're the ministry that's not the sexy ministry because you're you know for various reasons. Like you're not, there's no fog. We don't have fog machines in our ministry. We don't have, you know, this crazy band and stuff. That's what I mean by that. We talk a lot about sin. Yeah. I'm, oh, oh. All right. Um, but uh, the, the reality is, is that faith and repentance is not sexy. It's not this flamboyant aspect of the, of, of, of the Christian life. But it is the Christian life. Now it has appeal. It, like it, it's going to move somewhere. It's going to it's going to show something that's so much more beautiful and believable than anything, you know. That you would do on a Saturday, you know, work project's going to do. In in, in one sense, but I think I just think that's probably why. No, I know. I just think that's why. This is why kindness and gentleness are such a big deal, because what it does begin to show if I if, if, the way you see internally into my heart is if I'm working faith and repentance out in my own life is I'm kind and gentle towards others. Sorry, I'm verbal processing at this point. Yeah, I'm hearing the A to talk about the appearances because I think in the evangelical world the appearances are very important, so the outward morality or the outward good works are really important. And I think Ada's 
trying to make an emphasis on the internal motivation because the internal motivation is is really living a life like like this is what I was made to be. This is this is where I actually find life. And so kindness, gentleness, grace, good works flow out of who I am because I'm able to repent of my sin and I'm able to rest in the work of Christ. Um, I'm living like I'm, I'm trying to live like it's going to be in the new heavens and the earth. I'm starting today. You know, living like that um, because because it's hard to separate out and say that Christianity is faith and repentance because the whole point of second of second chapter of Ephesians is our good works. We've been created in Christ Jesus for these, but it's not just like an individual work. Like I'm okay. I got my work in for the day. I got my. It's like it's like our life mm-hmm. has been transformed so that when someone looks at our life, it's like wow. There's just just good works overflowing here. It's not like oh he went and did this on Saturday morning and that's a good work. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's like where life becomes different, which makes good works just kind of flow. Like you're not, you're not it's keeping fruit. track. It's fruit. It's fruit. Right. You're not keeping track like, now i got my three good works in. I can go, right. I can go do something else now. It's, it's second like, nature. Right. It just happens. Yeah. Good works will just happen. They just come, they flow out of faith and repentance. There's no stopping them. Like the fruit of the Spirit is not something you do. It's actually right. the fruit of the Spirit. Right. You're going to do it. Right. It's a good word to end on. Will you pray for us? Yep. Father, we, uh, we pray that we would walk.